And on her 18th birthday, she called me. And she said she had some questions and she wanted to see me. And I went and I picked my daughter up. We went to the mall and she spent all my damn money. <laughs> and what I realized is I have to be more specific when I'm talking to God. And <laughs> say, I want to see my kids and I'd like a little change in my pocket at the end. And she got in that car as I went to take her back home. And she said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. She said, you don't drink no more? I said, no, I haven't drank in some time. She said, how come you didn't ever come and get me? I said, every day I thought about you, but I couldn't take care of you because I have this thing called alcoholism. And as much as I love you, and I love you with everything inside of me, it kept me away from you. I said, but I'm going to AA now, and nothing at all can keep me from you again as long as I do this stuff. She said, okay. And she put her head on my shoulder. And it was like we had never been separated. One of the best days of my life. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode 34. This podcast will feature alcohol recovery stories that are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since 10-10-2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is not affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I'm glad you were here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. And now, it's time for a few announcements. I would like to remind you that SoberShares.com is ready for you to visit and enjoy. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly at Mike at SoberShares.com with your comments and suggestions. You can leave a voicemail by clicking the blue microphone icon. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by clicking on the links. You can support us with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on SoberShares.com. This donation process takes less than one minute, and your generosity will allow us to continue to bring you this show advertisement-free. Think of it like passing the basket at a meeting to help keep Sober Shares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly operating expenses and to move the project forward. You can also find a clickable link in the show notes of each episode that will take you to our secure donations page. I want to mention each listener by name who have made a financial gift to move this project forward. Thank you, Stacy G, David R, Michael P, and Vanessa L. Thank you very much for that. I'd like to move on to listener feedback now. We received an email from Mary. She says, Hi, Mike. I recently joined Al-Anon as I have desperately been seeking a cure for my husband's alcoholism. As you probably guessed, I haven't found it. In my desperation, I found your podcast and in it hope that somehow my husband will find his way through this. By listening to you and your wonderful guests, I have found a message of hope. It has helped me understand the personal impact this takes on the alcoholic and not just me. Please continue the fabulous work you and your guests are doing by bringing hope to alcoholics and those who love them. May God continue to bless you and all you do. Thank you, Mary. We appreciate that very much. 
And now it's time to turn our attention to this episode's guest, Angie P., recorded on April the 6th, 2008, at an AA conference in San Antonio, Texas. I was personally in attendance at this conference. I had no idea who she was or how powerful her story was, and I'm super excited to showcase her on Sober Shares. This is a very powerful story of recovery and redemption against all odds. This episode talks about incarceration. This episode talks about aging parents. This episode talks about mental illness. This episode talks about crime. This episode talks about being an African-American in Alcoholics Anonymous, racial issues, and much, much more. That's just skimming the surface of what we talk about today. I do want to alert everybody that the last two minutes of the podcast, there is a performance that is given by Angie P, where she sings the song Amazing Grace live from the podium. And I remember being there in the audience that day, and the entire speech kept building momentum and building momentum. And I kept thinking, this is one of the best talks I've ever heard in my entire life. And when she closed with her singing of the song Amazing Grace, which you will hear in this episode in the last two minutes, tears started to stream down my face. And I remember sitting there looking at my friend Chad, who went to the conference with me, and he just looked at me with a knowing nod like, yeah, dude, this is real. This is happening. This is fantastic. And it was a glorious event. So please enjoy Angie P. Hi, everybody. My name is Angie, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. Back home, we lived uh, in a little white house on a red clay road, and we got our water out of wells, and we uh, drank buttermilk and ate cornbread on a regular basis. Um, I didn't wear shoes until I came to the city. We picked blackberries for fun, and uh, life was extremely simple. Uh, I'm from a family of Baptist ministers. We went to church every day, all day. And oh my God, you know what I mean? I was so happy when, um, you know, I, well, I sinned and didn't go. Well, anyway, I had flaming red hair and freckles growing up and nobody else in my family did. And imagine that. And uh, my, uh, my brother told me at the outhouse one day as he uh, stood there and not let me out that he knew why I looked the way I did. And he said it was because the mailman was my daddy who did have red hair and freckles, by the way. And so every time I saw him coming down the road, I would run up to him and I was like, Daddy! Oh, there go my daddy right there. Give me a hug. And he would um, put his arms around me and tell me how cute I was. And, you know, thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous and the book and sponsorship and the steps and traditions. I found out that that turned out to be a little pattern for me. Actually, that if you just you know, pat me on my head and tell me how cute I was. We were, we were basically married at that point. And <laughs> so we, my dad got transferred to Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, he traveled back and forth uh, uh, finding us a place to live, and he also found himself a little girlfriend. And so he still moved us to Cincinnati, but he went to live with his girlfriend and her kids, and that left my mother to raise my brother and my sister and myself. And I must tell you, when I first got sober, my mother was my biggest problem. I really truly believe that if she treated me the way she treated my brother and sister, I would not be in the predicament that I am, being at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and calling myself an alcoholic. See, it was my mother's fault. And, and I must tell you that my mother uh, struggles with mental illness today. It's one of the most difficult things to watch. Feeling powerless with our upbringing, not believing in taking medication, and watching her mental state deteriorate as the days go by. 
But I called her when I got to my hotel room last night. And she said, where are you at? I said, I'm in Texas. And she goes, what you doing in Texas? I said, they brought me here to speak. And she said, about what? <laughs> I said, well, they want to hear my story. And she goes, well, I've been with you all your life, and it doesn't seem that important to me. <laughs> I said, OK, mother, thank you very much for the boost of self-esteem. <laughs> I'm going I'm to lay down and cry now. But, um, but she's just, you know, she is where she is. And I thank you so much, Alcoholics Anonymous, for teaching me how to be there for my mother without any expectation and teaching me that my mother came into this world with her own set of problems that had nothing to do with me. I am so grateful to know that because I can be there for my mother when she calls me and tells me that she just got off the phone with Donald Trump. <laughs> I can be there and I can say, you know what, mother, that's wonderful. How's Don? You know what I mean? And, you know, I, I, you know, instead of judging it, and that's what you've taught me, Alcoholics Anonymous, that it's not necessary that I judge the situation. You see, what can I bring positive to it? And I'm a lover of Alcoholics Anonymous. So we moved up, and, and now I'm a, I got a big red afro. My mother, she, she was very, very uh, strong about education, and, and she wanted us to have great educations. She taught us that because we were black, we will always be less than. And I think my brother and sister got that. But for me, it hit me totally different, and it's just the way that I absorb information. And what it meant to me was whenever I'm around you, that I'm not noticed, that you don't care, and that I'll never be like you. Thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous, where you taught me that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And if you're African-American and new, and if you're African-American old, you should feel very special here. It's, it's like being chocolate chips in a big glass of milk. You know what I mean? You should feel very special. When I first got sober, I had a hard time talking in front of a bunch of white people. And, and God continues to use me in that area. And, um, and I'd like for you guys to thank, thank you very much for bringing that back for me. I appreciate it, San Antonio. And uh, so anyway, now I'm going to this Catholic school. I got a big red afro, uh, uh, a white blouse, a plaid skirt, and black and white spaldings and bobby socks. And, and I got beat up on a regular basis because it just didn't look normal. You know what I mean? It just, I didn't even see a black person with red hair and freckles until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember I ran up to him, oh, so fast. And I was like, where have you been? Give me a hug. And, uh, and so I, I, I got chased, and, and I'll tell you what, I just got chased and beat up all the time. And that's why I like that movie, Forrest Gump, you know, um, because he ran so hard, he ran right out of his braces. And I could relate to that because I was a runner, and I was fearful, and I was made fun of a lot. And one day, this girl named Squeaky, Squeaky was like 6'10", like in the fifth grade. And she hung out with this girl who, like, you know, picked on all the other people who were different. And I was uh, definitely different. And one day, uh, they stoned me on my way home from school. And I ran in the house. I made it in the house. I was so happy. And I ran in. I told my mother, I said, whew, squeaking in was about to kill me. But I made it. And I knew whenever my mother sounded like this that it was going to be trouble. She goes, you know, Angela, at some point you're going to have to learn how to stand up for yourself. She goes, and what I need you to do, Angela, is I need you to go back out into that parking lot and you stand up to squeaky. I said, you want me to do what? <laughs> she said, I want you to go and you stand up to her or you can stay in here and get the butt whooping that I'm going to give you. 
and I knew what hers felt like, and I only knew what Squeaky's appeared to be. And so I went out to the parking lot, and I told her, I said, my mother said I'm supposed to fight you. And she said, well, come on then. So I balled my fists up, and I closed my eyes. <laughs> and I knew I had to reach up. So I said, okay, God, here we go. Oh, I got her right here. It was the happiest day of my life. Oh, I had hit the giant. You know what I mean? Oh, my gosh. And I'll tell you what, I started fighting from that point on all the way up into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember when I got sober, I would come into the meetings of AA, and they would talk about working steps and get a sponsor. And finally, I got a sponsor, this white woman. And, and I, 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 I said, I ain't working no steps. You better ask somebody about me. <laughs> I have hurt people. <laughs> and she's from England. She's an English woman. And she goes, oh, really? <laughs> I mean, no, no, really. Exactly who have you hurt? And I was like, well, I don't know all the names right now. <laughs> and she goes, well, I will tell you, ooh. I was like, I can tell we're going to have a problem right now, me and you, sister. And, uh, and so I, uh, I started fighting, and uh, my mother started working. She worked as a waitress uh, for years, and she sent my brother and sister and myself to private schools. And then she got a job for a company called Avon, and uh, she came and picked me up on my 12th birthday from St. James of the Valley, and she took us to this neighborhood, and it was an all-white neighborhood, and she said, this is our new house, and it's a beautiful red brick house. It sits on a lot of land, and my mother still lives there. And uh, uh, we got to this neighborhood, and, and uh, from the age of 13 to probably, I don't know, maybe 19, I wasn't even black no more. I, uh, I listened to Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. <laughs> my favorite girl group was Heart. <laughs> and the first concert I ever went to was Led Zeppelin, 1979, yeah. baby. I was at the Ted Nugent Foreigner concert one night. Foreigner was singing Feels Like the First Time. And I remember I looked around that whole entire Coliseum. I didn't see one black person. I remember thinking, I am bad. I am bad. And you know, if you were growing up back in those days, we all had our air guitars, you know, and... Uh, and that's what I did most of the time, was just stood around, and most people put their air guitars down uh, when they weren't at concert, but I played mine constantly. <laughs> and, uh, and, and just any time I heard a song, it didn't matter, I always had the guitar solo. And, uh, and, and, and I'll tell you, I had a great time. I, I met these five girls that I hung out with, and uh, five girls, they were white. My best friend's name was Rebecca. And uh, I was over at Rebecca's house one day, and uh, her family was together, and we were down in the basement. Her brothers were drinking beer, and all of a sudden her mother called a family meeting. They have this family meeting. They got together. As soon as she said, family meeting, they just came from out of the woodwork and went to the living room, and they all sat down. And Rebecca's mother goes, Rebecca, <laughs> that's my white woman voice, Rebecca, <laughs> Your, parent, your, your father and I have been communicating, and we understand that there's been some alcohol consumption. 
And what your father and I would like to tell you guys is that if you're going to drink, we would appreciate it if you would drink at home. I said, what'd your mother just say? And she goes, yeah. She wants us to drink at home because it's safer. I thought that was the most loving family I'd ever met in my life. I really, truly did. And so one night, I was at home in my backyard, and Rebecca came over, and she had a brown bag and, and uh, two bottles in it, and it was Boone's Farm apple wine. What? You know, that's amazing. I speak at my church on a regular basis, and I tell them that I drank Boone's Farm, and, 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 and they don't have that reaction. You know? But I speak at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and say I drank Boone Farm, and everybody's like, that's it. Been there, done that. And my congregation looks at me as if they feel sorry for me. And uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, I uh, took that drink of alcohol, and Becky said that her brother had schooled her in the art of chugging. And uh, we turned those bottles up, and, and I drank mine. And, and I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, when I swallowed that what happened to me did not happen to my friend Rebecca. That something hit the bottom of my feet, and it rolled slowly through my body. And it was nothing I'd ever experienced before in my life. There was a feeling of love that overcame me. And when it got to the top of my head, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that every opportunity I got, I was going to drink alcohol. There wasn't a second thought about it. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I cannot believe this stuff. Rebecca, however, was throwing up, flapping around like a fish out of water. And I'm over here like, oh my goodness. And me and Becky got in a fight that night. And, and of course she won. Because when I got sober, I would tell all you guys, hey, they called me to knock out Queen downtown Cincinnati. You better ask somebody, check my track record. And then, you know, you work some steps and you got to get honest. And the reason why they called me the knockout queen, because every time somebody hit me, they knocked me out. You know? And so I had that drink of alcohol and there started my journey. And I'll tell you what, from the very beginning, alcohol became my master. I no longer found it necessary to listen to my parents. I started drinking at the age of 13 and I no longer went back to school. All I did was drink and party. And you couldn't have told me back then that that was not the way it was supposed to be. I believed that everybody partied the way that I did. And I don't mean any disrespect. There's, you know, a couple drugs in my lead. Just breathe and blow out slowly. But I, um, I uh, you know, smoked a little marijuana, and I didn't really like that because it seemed like I smoked it and ate everything in everybody's freezer that had been there for 10 years. And I did a little acid and got a mental health diagnosis. And, but I have, to, I have to tell you this, I, uh, I was, uh, had, had, my friend Rebecca gave me two bills and told me only take one. And, and, and you know, I took two and, and uh, it, it was strawberry mescaline. And, and so I'm driving down the road and we're going, all of a sudden they're like, hey, let's go to McDonald's. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. So I'm driving and I turned into McDonald's and something happened. Everything became colorful and it didn't even see like the car was on the ground and the birds were waving. As I drove past and I thought, wow, this is, this is nice. And then we got to this little yellow box and, and, uh, and then somebody started hollering at me. What do you want? 
What, 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 what do you want? That's all I heard. That's what the acid told me it was saying. What, what do you want? And I, you know, started flipping out. I said, oh, no, buddy, what do you want? No, not what do I want. What do you want? I said, you know, I'm not that good of a fighter, but he was only about this big. I could whoop him. You know what I mean? And, and I, uh, so I, you know, we argued with this guy, and they were in the back seat laughing, and they said, pull up, and, you know, some girls asking me for money, which appalled me, and, uh, you know, and they're handing her money, and we get up to the next window, and he's pushing bags in the car, and I'm pushing bags back at him, and, you know, and they call the police, rightfully so, rightfully so. They call the police, and the police come, and, and uh, uh, ask me what my name was, and, you know, I told them, you know, R2-D2, and, and uh, you know, they don't take right kindly to that stuff, and... Uh, and uh, they told me to pull over, and I told him, you know, I tried to move my car, it would not move. And, and, uh, and I told the officer, I said, I'm trying to move, it won't move. And he looks in and he goes, ma'am, in America, when we want our cars to go, we put them in drive. <laughs> oh, okay. So I drove over and uh, he was talking to me at the window and he sounded like this. Do you have? a driver's license. I said, you know, officer, why don't you just put the handcuffs on me now? Because <laughs> this isn't good. And I went to jail. And, uh, and they called my parents and said, we have your daughter down here. And, and my mother said, well, make sure she's warm and hung up. Um, and uh, my parents were not enabling people. You know, my parents told me, if this is the way you want to live, that's fine and dandy. We have other children that we have to raise. And, uh, um, and so I left home at a very, very early age. And I uh, began to drink and hang out, and that's all I did was I went to concerts, I drank, and, and I just, you know, I quit going to school, I just, you know, quit doing everything, and uh, I uh, started hanging out with these girls, and at the age of 15, my dad had got me a um, job at a recording studio, and I've been singing since I was about three, and he gets me this job at the recording studio, and I don't know, if you're an artist like I am, you, you wait for the day when somebody, you know, just hears you. And, and, you know, uh, and so I'm in the bathroom and, and they're going to, you know, when they hear you, they're going to have this, you know, contract and, and uh, you don't do any work to get it, but they just hear you. And uh, so I'm in the bathroom, you know how the acoustics are in there, and I hit my best Whitney Houston note. And I, all of a sudden I come out of the bathroom and there's this tall brother standing there. He goes, was that you? And I said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, it was me. <laughs> And he goes, you know, I can make you famous. I said, really? He goes, yeah, you'll just have to go to Las Vegas. No problem. So I went home and I called a family meeting. And <laughs> didn't quite go over like Rebecca's did, but <laughs> called a family meeting and, and uh, I sat them down and I told them, I, I will be back for you. As soon as I get my first Grammy, we'll never be poor again. And my mom's like, who's poor? <laughs> we'll live in great houses. And my father would keep things real simple when he dealt with me. He said, something is wrong with you. <laughs> That's what he said to me all the time. And I was in total agreement with him. But my sister, my little sister saying, Angie, don't go. And I said, but this guy said he could make me famous. And my mother said, Angela, you don't know who this man is, but I got to go. He said those words, those words that I'd been waiting to hear, I can make you famous. And I went out to Las Vegas, Nevada with this man. I was a young girl singing and opening up for some of the biggest stars, having the time of my life. Alcohol was flowing freely, and that's what I did. I drank 
and I sang, and I sang, and I drank. And you couldn't tell me that with every drink of alcohol that I had, that I didn't get greater than the song before. You just couldn't tell me that. And you know what? I had never heard it until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that the first drink was the problem. Never heard that before. You know what they say? Angie, just drink two. Drink beer, don't drink whiskey. Smoke weed before you drink. You know what I mean? You'll stay, you'll stay drunk longer. All the recipes. And I was doing what they said, but never had I heard that the first drink was the problem. And so I'm out here with this man, and, and I'm, I'm singing, and I'm, I'm making a name for myself in Vegas. And, uh, and, and this thing's starting to happen. I know it probably doesn't happen in San Antonio, but I begin to not remember things uh, <laughs> when I drank and, and began to wake up, uh, you know, next, I mean, I know you women have never experienced, but just waking up next to people that you don't know. And, <laughs> you know, and you guys looking at each other, and, you know, both of us are going, dang! And he's got one tooth and it's gold. And he told me that his name was Zeb. And uh, Zeb was telling me things like, you told me you loved me last night. I was like, oh my God, Zeb, did I? Okay, untrue. And, uh, and, uh, and that's the kind of stuff that was happening to me in Vegas. And, uh, you know, I started to uh, sing and... and uh, blackout and they tell me that I took my clothes off on stage and that, well, it wasn't that bad, God. <laughs> this woman's over here like, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> I mean, I don't look that bad, thank you. And, uh, and, and I began to get blacklisted in Las Vegas and, and in casinos and I couldn't get a singing job and this man that I was with had his own set of afflictions, and he was a heroin drug user. And uh, so at the age of 18, I was introduced to heroin. And I'm drinking alcohol, and I'm shooting heroin intravenously, and I'm out in Las Vegas, and I'm really just a lost little girl, because I'm from South Carolina, and I knew nothing about the city, I knew nothing about the streets, but this man told me he could make me famous. And uh, I began to get blacklisted, and he began to get abusive. And every day, he was beating me on a regular basis sent me out to the streets and told me that I was supposed to do a job and that was make money. And uh, I drank and I would go out and I would try to make money. But if you're like me, I like to drink. And I don't know, you know a lot about prostitution, but I think it helps if you're somewhat sober. And uh, it wasn't the case for me. So I just drank and I didn't make any money and I got beat more. and. Uh, we were at, by this time we were staying in this little seedy hotel and uh, he comes and gets me one day uh, from the hotel and said that he needed me to drive him to the store for cigarettes and when I drove him to the store for cigarettes he went in and he robbed the place and he shot and he killed the owner and so you just couldn't have told me that at the age of 13 when I took that drink of alcohol with my friend Rebecca that I would have ever ever been on trial for complicity to aggravated murder you just couldn't have told me that and so I don't know about you guys and your drinking, but it seemed to me, though, that when I took that drink of alcohol, that I no longer had a call or a shot on my life, that alcohol dictated to me where it was, where I went, who I hung out with, and what I did. And so now I'm out here, and I'm on trial, and I got these people sitting here telling me what kind of person I was. Look at what you've done. You've taken our father. 
Look at what you've done. And I'll tell you what, as much as I heard from those people, they could have never hurt me any more than what I was saying to myself. Because here I am. I just was a young girl. But the one thing I know, if I don't know anything else, that had I not have been drinking, that situation would not have happened to me. And I need to tell you that this gentleman is still in prison as we speak. And here I am in San Antonio, Texas. I don't know why God works the way that he does. But thank God that he's always had a hand on my shoulder. And thank God that he allowed me to get to you. And thank God for alcohol. Because it kept me, it kept me alive long enough until I got to your arms. Long enough until I got to your arms. And I ended up getting a floater out of the state of Nevada. And that's from the governor. And it says, don't, don't you come back here. Don't you ever come back here. And, and I took my little letter and I left. I don't, e I don't even watch stuff on TV about Las Vegas. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's how scared I am. And, and I came back to Cincinnati and, and, and I said, that's it. No more drinking for me. And I came back and I told my parents, no more drinking for me. That's it. And uh, that lasted all of two weeks. Because I didn't know that of my own self, I couldn't not drink. I had to drink. And uh, back home on Sundays on the city bus, you can ride for free. It's called Sunday Pass Riding. And you can go and you can visit all these different places. And my brother and my sister and myself were all on the... Um, the, the city bus, and we're riding around, and we get to a corner of Liberty and Vine in Cincinnati, and uh, there was a little restaurant there, and when I looked over, man, it was Cadillacs and Lincolns and Pimps, and I remember my little sister looking over there going, boy, you couldn't pay me to go over there, and my brother's like, shoot, me neither, and I remember sitting there thinking, I'm going over there tomorrow, <laughs> and that's what I began to do. I began to ride the number 20 bus from my mother's house all the way downtown, hanging out with my friends. My friends got me. My friends drank the way I did. They understood me. They understood me more than my biological family did. And as the days grew, I stopped coming back home. And I began to hang downtown in the streets of Cincinnati with some of the biggest gangsters and just drinking and watching stuff happen. And watching stuff happen. And I'm down here and I'm telling you, it, it was so exciting to me because, see, it wasn't happening like this in South Carolina. But it was most certainly, most certainly happening in the city, and I was having the time of my life. And I hung out with these three guys, and their names was No Neck, Greasy Feet, and Tie-Dye. And these guys were brilliant to me. I mean, they would take me into department stores. They would get me a girdle and tell me to put it on and take me into department stores. And they would have me roll up outfits and stick them around the girdle and then close my coat and zip it up and walk out of the store and go and sell this stuff to some guy for the remarkably low price of. And I just thought they were brilliant, you know, until I got arrested. And um, I got arrested uh, with all this merchandise and uh, went to jail and got sentenced to the penitentiary. And uh, I'm on my way to prison and I get there and I take a physical and I find out that I'm pregnant. And so now I'm on my way to prison. I have a child growing in my stomach and I can tell you that the only reason why I didn't lose my mind was because my child was growing in my stomach. And every single day I would rub my stomach and I would say, I'm going to be a good mother. This is it for me. I'm going to be a good mother. And I meant that from the bottom of my heart. 
I meant it from the bottom of my heart. I had my son on October 22nd, 1983. And when I had my son, the warden came and told me that I had to find a place for my child to go to because of the amount of time that I was doing, he would end up being a ward of the state. And so I called my family who at this time totally kicked me to the curb and I called my mother and I said, I need you to come up to the prison and get my baby. And my mother said, Angela, you have a baby? I said, yes, ma'am, and I need you to come and get him. And my parents came and they got my son from the penitentiary and they didn't stop to see me because my parents believed that I wasn't raised for this sort of behavior and they wanted nothing to do with it. They prayed for me and they prayed for me, but they would not for any reason visit me in any kind of jail. And I watched my son leave that prison through a slit about this big. And I remember, man, with all of the love I had inside of me for my child, I said, when I get out, I'm going to do the right thing. And I meant that from the bottom of my heart. And when I got out, my son was four years old. And I'm on my way down the highway. And all I could think about was seeing my son. That's all I could think about. And I got to the Greyhound bus station downtown Cincinnati, and it's, it's in the big book. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind. Just like that. All the crying I had did on that bus about seeing my child. When I got there, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that I hadn't had a drink in a while. And I went up to that bar and I began drinking with my friends. <clears throat> and the next time I saw my son, he was 10 years old. See, I don't know about you, but when I put alcohol in my system, I cannot judge or tell you where I'm going or what I'm going to do. And here it is, all these years later, what was I to tell my parents? That I was drunk? I couldn't tell them that. And so you know what I did? Like an alcoholic would do. I just acted like it didn't exist. I acted like it didn't exist. And now I'm drinking, I'm going to jail. I'm coming out long enough to put a drunk on. I'm going back to jail. Boom. Four years later, I'm pregnant with my daughter. And I need to tell you that I, I, I found out I was pregnant, and for the first time, they let me have probation. And I didn't have one single day of prenatal care with my daughter. I drank through my whole entire pregnancy. And I'm a believer in angels, because I had, had to get a job. And I got a job at this restaurant, and for some reason, this white couple took to me, and they said, we're going to Bloomington, Indiana to open up another restaurant. Would you like to come with us? And I said, yes. And they said, what are you going to do? What are your plans for the child? I said, I'm going to give her up for adoption because I can't take care of her. I had my daughter, and that couple was in the delivery room with me. And I had my daughter, and when you give a child up for adoption, they throw this tarp over you. And as she was born, they took her. And they took her to medical. And they, they took her to the nursery, and they took me to medical. As I laid there, wondering what I was going to do with my life, my parents found out where I was and called the hospital and said, Angie, bring her home. Bring her home. And because I had had no prenatal care with her, she was just so small. So small. And uh, they told the hospital that she had next of kin who would take her. 
And so I got my parents paid for a ticket and I got on the Greyhound bus with my daughter. And I said, please, God, just don't let her cry. Don't let her do anything because I don't know what to do. And that four hour bus ride, my daughter didn't make one sound. There was times I'd have to lift her up just to see if she was breathing. And I got to the Greyhound bus station downtown Cincinnati and my parents were there in my dad's pickup. And they got out and they came and they took my baby out of my arms and they said, Angie, we got her. We got her from here. And I said, what am I supposed to do? And they said, we don't know what you're supposed to do, Angie. But she didn't ask for this. And they drove off. And from that day forward, I drank basically to die. I drank every opportunity I got. One night I'm drinking at a bar and some guy asked me if I want to get high and I go upstairs with him to get high and he shoots ice water into my veins. He took my dope and he took and he shot the ice water into my veins. By this time I was living at a boarding house on the banks of the Ohio River. And I'm here, I got this ice water in my veins, I'm throwing up profusely, I'm sweating, I'm dizzy, and I knew you guys, if I didn't know anything else, that this was the, more, the point that I was going to die. I knew it. And I walked those 17 blocks, and I asked God every step of the way, I said, I just don't want to die like this. I don't want to die like this. I don't want my family to find me like this. And I'm a believer in angels. And I get down to this boarding house, and there's this little white woman at the door. And I reach to open the door, and she pushes it open, and she looks at me, and she said, you do not have to live like that. And I said, I'm sick, and I need some help. And she said, would you like to go somewhere with me? And I said, if it can make me feel better, I'll go anywhere. And she took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. She put that rag on my head that night, and she began to tell me about her drinking, but she didn't tell me how much she drank. She told me how she felt as the result of her drinking. She told me how she felt after she drank, and I could relate to that. She talked about being a terrible mother. She talked about having all the intentions in the world, but never ever stuck to any of them. So she takes me to this Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at this clubhouse in Cincinnati. If you're ever there, it's called 405 Oak Street. She takes me there, and when I got sober, they could park their Harleys in the front. So it was about 200 Harleys parked in the front. All these white people on the lawn with white cups. And I thought, well, seems like it's going to be a pretty nice party. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm walking up the sidewalk, and they're reaching out their hands, and they're saying, welcome, my name is, and welcome. And I said, well, good, they friendly, too. That's nice. And, uh, and so I go to the top step going into the clubhouse, and this big biker dude picks me up, and he goes, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Squirrel. <laughs> and I was like, Squirrel, you're going to have to put me down, man. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, oh, you have hit an all-time low, sister. You are at Alcoholics Anonymous. So when I came into AA, it wasn't a lot of African-American people in AA. So we walk into this clubhouse, and it's all these white people. Just noise. People talking, just noise. Newcomer mentality, just noise. Everybody sounded like it just was 
And she goes, we're going to sit over here. I said, good. So I sat real close to the wall in case wherever this was, it wasn't contagious. So she tells me that this guy's getting ready to get up and tell his story. Honey, that man got up to the podium and he started telling his story and I was appalled. <laughs> I could not believe this man was standing up there telling all his business like that. I could not believe it. And I beat my wife seven days instead of six days this week. And it seemed like the whole audience went, ah! <laughs> and I remember thinking, these white people are crazy as they can be. And then after he got finished, everybody rose up and grabbed hands and bowed their heads. I was like, and they hypocrites too. <laughs> so all of a sudden, they say, well, it's, it's uh, customary that we thank the speaker after they talk. I said, well, good, because I got a couple questions I want to ask. So I get up there, and he shakes his, Lee puts his hand out, and he goes, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, little lady. So I pulled him close to you. I said, look here, brother. You know your buddy's laughing at you, man. He goes, excuse me. I said, for real. Didn't you hear them all laughing at you? They don't care nothing about you, man. They laughed at everything you said. And he said, well, keep coming back. I said, oh, no. You keep coming back. I don't know what this organization is, but apparently you need to be sitting in the front row. And I stayed around AA for a while. It wasn't like I had a huge social schedule or anything. And I was real militant. Everything was because I was black. And if I was at the coffee bar and you didn't give me my coffee in time, I would just step back and I would say, it's because I'm black, ain't it? That's why I can't get my coffee. It's because I'm black. Why I got to drink my coffee out of a white cup? Why can't I drink my coffee out of a black cup? Then I became really militant. I didn't know where to come. Then I started wearing dashikis and head wraps. And I, I mean, I was raised in an all-night white neighborhood. I don't know where that came from. You know what I mean? And, and I got this sponsor. And they te kept telling me, you have to get a sponsor. You got to get a sponsor. And one day, I'm sitting outside the clubhouse. And this woman, this white woman, pulls up in a red sports car. And they kept telling me, you need to, you want to get somebody that you want what they have. <laughs> and she pulled up in that red sports car. She had diamonds on all tens, a Mr. T starter set. And uh, I said, there goes my sponsor right there. So she was coming up the walk, and I jumped in front of her, and I said, hey, lady, you want to be my sponsor? And she said, She's from England. She says, of course, I'd love to be your sponsor. I said, can I drive your car? She goes, oh, goodness, keep coming back. And, um, and I'll tell you what this lady did for me. Because all I knew was anger and fear. I was loud and belligerent. My language was cuss words. I screamed and yelled. But this was the one woman who was never, ever intimidated by me. She would say things to me like, shut up. You don't know how to react to that. You know what I mean? And I would raise my hand in the meeting and say something. And it would be the most ridiculous. Stuff. She goes, I told you to shut it up. And I finally, I was like, look, you ain't going to keep talking to me like that, um, lady. Now, I mean, I know you white and all, but, you know, some of my ancestors picked cotton. She goes, oh, really? Who do you personally know that picked cotton? 
I was like, well, I don't know nobody personally. <laughs> you know, that's what they told me, you know what I mean? And that's how she got me. You know what I mean? She threw it right back at me. And I'm saying this to say this. Please don't be afraid to hurt our little feelings. Please don't be afraid because some of us will die because some of you are afraid to hurt our feelings. Tell me the truth. I'll deal with the feeling part. But tell me the truth. And I'm so thankful for the women and men when I got sober in Cincinnati who did not care about me selling wolf tickets. You know, they told me to sit down. You ain't got nothing to say. Sit down. I remember thinking, y'all ain't going to keep hollering at me, you know, <laughs> like this. I remember 10 years later, I'm still going, y'all ain't going to keep on hollering at me like you hollered at me. And, and I stayed around AA for a little while, and, you know, I was belligerent and just crazy. And, and uh, you guys have been talking about God using you as an instrument. I said, you know what? I think God using me as an instrument, too. I think he want me to go out and find some black alcoholics. So one day wasn't a cloud on the horizon. And I called my sponsor and I said, thank you very much for all the work that you did in sponsorship school. But uh, I'm going to roll on about it here and go help some of my people. She goes, okay, well, I'll see you if you make it back. I was like, oh, well, I don't see any reason why I would have to come back. But I'll send them directly to you. She goes, okay. So I figured since I've been at AA all this time telling y'all I was here, that surely you would want to know if I was leaving. So I went to the 830 uh, <laughs> meeting and they asked if it was any AA-related announcement. <laughs> Old-timer said, Angie, I said, look here, people, I'm going to roll on up out of here. And, uh, you know, thank you for the real thick book and all the coffee. And, uh, and I hope that y'all learned that drinking is bad for you. <laughs> But I'm going to leave, and you know, some old-timer, you know how sensitive they are. All of a sudden, he goes, well, get out of here then. There's people trying to stay sober here. We'll see you if you make it back. I said, did you talk to my sponsor? <laughs> she said the same thing. And I was like, but I don't see any reason why I would come back. And, and I grabbed my big book, and, and I, uh, I said to myself, as I was walking down the street, the first black person, the first African-American person I see that appears to be Drinking, I'm going to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I got on the bus. All of a sudden, the brother gets on staggering. Bingo! I got my book and opened it up. And I slid over next to him. I said, look here, brother, you been drinking? He said, yeah, I had a little something. something. I said, you know what, you may be an alcoholic. And he started cussing me out and everything. Talking about, you know, he wasn't an alcoholic. I said, you know, the people from the AA club... <laughs> told me that you would probably react like this to my information. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give it to you the only way that I know how and probably the only way that you can receive it. And I opened up the big book to chapter 5 and I told you I was from a family of Baptist ministers and I opened it up and I said, Rally! <laughs> Did you hear what I said? I said, Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. <laughs> I said, those who do not recover are those who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And the bus driver said, oh, hell no. <laughs> he said, you got to get off this bus. So I told him he was an alcoholic too. And, uh, and, and I went downtown and uh, 
I went to the bar where that I usually went to because I knew it was some black drunks in there. And I went in and, and they were all on the dance floor dancing to the jukebox, you know, appearing to have fun. But I had been a, a, in AA, so I knew that they were in pain, really. <laughs> See, I'd been in AA, so they were dancing and they were shaking it up. But I was like, look at them. Mm, mm, mm. They are in so much pain. And the wilder they danced, the more crazier they were. I was like, and look at her. God, I'm sure she's suffering. So I went over to the jukebox and I pulled the plug out. And I said, black alcoholics. They got a place for you. It's called the Double A Club. You two never have to drink again, ever. And you could be happy, joyous, and free. And they said, well, what you doing down here? I said, well, I graduated. And then, like, when you get to the 17th step, it say you're supposed to help people. <laughs> so, you know, they weren't being receptive to my information. So I climbed up on the bar, and I opened up the big book to chapter 5. And I said, you know, I'm going to give it to you the only way that I know how and probably the only way that you could receive it. And they were standing and looked at me, and I said, Rarely! Did you hear what I said? I said, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. I said, those who do not recover are those who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And the bar owner goes, oh, hell, to the gnaw. Get out. You got to go. And I you know, told him he was an alcoholic, too. And so I'm outside in front of this bar, and I'm reading a book to the passerbyers, and suddenly the thought crossed my mind. If you're new in the room, Please read all the book, but most certainly read more about alcoholism. Read more about alcoholism. Because there was a man in there once concerned about a business he once had, and he's sitting there, and he's one day, and then suddenly the thought crossed his mind that surely he could put some whiskey in his milk. He sensed he wasn't being a bit too smart. That's what happened to me. That's exactly what happened to me. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that I had been in AA for a little while. Let me go ahead and take a drink. I'm cool. And I, and, and I went into the bar, and I said, uh, can I have a shot of gin, please? She said, Angie, come on now. You ain't drinking a while. I said, give me. I said, you know, I, I, and that's what I'm saying. I mean, that makes me, you know, pretty cool because I haven't drank in a while. And, and I uh, took that shot of gin and I threw it back. And 45 minutes later, I was in a crack house. It's B. Now, let me tell you about me and people who came to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and told me that they used crack prior to my using. We don't deal with that here. You need to go to another fellowship. We don't talk about drugs here. We don't do that here. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. Go somewhere else. That's what I was telling them. But I must tell you what I've learned in these few 24 hours that I've been here, that any time I stand in judgment of one of God's children, that what I've done is I've just written a meal ticket to experience it on some level in my life. Because it's only through understanding for me that I'm able to help other people. So I'm out there and I'm drinking. I'm doing things that you couldn't have told me I'd ever, ever do. When I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous June the 20th, 1991, my hair was matted to my head. I weighed 85 pounds and I had not had a bath in a month. And I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Because when I walked into that clubhouse looking the way that I was looking, you wouldn't believe how many people walked past me. Walked past me. 
I went to that coffee bar and that old timer said, Angie, you're going to die. And I said, I know, and I need you to help me. And he gave me that big book. He said, you go stand at that door and you greet people. And as stinking and as nasty as I was, I reached my hand out to people and people drew back. But there are those members of Alcoholics Anonymous who said to me, I'm glad you're here. Welcome to AA. Do you want a cup of coffee? You're welcome here. And that's the day that I fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous because of those people who said it was attraction rather than promotion. And I started going to meetings. I was homeless. I only had the clothes that I had on my back. And if you're new in the room and you're black and you think that these white people can't help you, I am here to tell you. Don't let the disease of alcoholism talk you into going back out there. Keep you away from the people that could save your life. These people took me to their homes and they watched what I did. But if I didn't know anything else, y'all, I knew without a shadow of a doubt I didn't want to drink anymore. And whatever I had to do, I would do it. And I started going to meetings. I started doing what my sponsor suggested that I do. I started working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I did that third step prayer in the bathroom with my sponsor and both of us was on our knees. And when we got done with that third step, she showed me the fourth step in the big book and she said, I need you to do this. Thank God she didn't say, I need you to do it when you get ready. She said, you need to have it done in a week. And I did it the best that I could do. It was the truth as I knew it. And I got with that sponsor and I did that fourth and fifth step. And the only thing that happened to me, and this is what's going to happen to you newcomers, is that you'll have digested some chunks of truth about yourself. That's what happened for me. Then she showed me six and seven. And she told me, because I told her, I said, I probably need to work on six and seven. She said, don't you work on nothing. <laughs> you say that seven-step prayer every day, three times a day, and that's what I did. And I made that A-step list. And some of those people on that A-step list, if I would have went there to make amends, I'm sure that they would have killed me because of the things that I've done. If you're new in the room, go over that list with your sponsor. Don't do it the way I did it when I first came in. I admitted that I was powerless over alcohol, and then I went to my family, and I said, I'm sorry. And it don't work like that. Thank God they're in order. Thank God they're in order. And I made that list, and I became willing to make those amends. And one of the hardest amends to make was I had stole my mother's ring, the only thing she had of her dead mother's, and I pawned it for $20. And I told her that her husband at the time did it, and she left and I had to go back to my mother, and I had to say, that was me that stole that ring. And the only thing she said to me was, Angela, if you don't continue doing what you're doing, somebody's going to kill you. And what she was saying to me is that how she felt about me at that time. And I got with that 10-step, like my sponsor told me to, and I don't do one every day, but I do one just about every day. And in that 11-step is where I learned how to meditate. And I did exactly what it said in the 12 and 12, if you knew. Read the 12 and 12. Go to 12 and 12 meetings. And then when it comes to that 12 step, why wouldn't I come to San Antonio and speak? Why wouldn't I? Man, I've been overly compensated in this deal. If I got what I deserved, my kids wouldn't even speak to me, but they do. Because I gave them up like they were a pair of jeans. Let me tell you about my daughter. My daughter is 21 years old. She turned 21 last week, and she attends Grambling State University in Louisiana. Not by anything that I've done, because my parents asked me to step out of my kid's life at three years sober. 
and let them have the same opportunities that I had. It was the hardest decision that I ever made, but it's the first selfless decision that I ever made. My sponsor was the one, because everybody was telling me in AA, get your kids, be a mother, get your kids. And when they said it, I said, I'll stay out, I'll stay out of their lives. They didn't want me to come over for holidays. They didn't want me to do anything. Thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. On holidays, I would just stay in my room at home and pray for the day to be over. Because I knew that everybody was flying in from South Carolina. Everybody was doing all this stuff, but I couldn't show up. Thank God for sponsorship. Because my sponsor shared with me, Angie, you are spiritually connected to your children. And there's nothing that anybody can do about that. But I went to their soccer games. I had to go. If you're a parent, you know what I mean. And I would go to my son's soccer game and my daughter's soccer game and I'd have a baseball cap on and sunglasses, but I had to see him. And I would sit back in the furthest corner behind the tree and I would watch him. I watched my daughter go to the prom from up the street in a car. And when she came out of the house, she looked so beautiful. She, well, she, she looked like me, actually. <laughs> and she was just absolutely beautiful. And I said, look at my baby. And on her 18th birthday, she called me and she said she had some questions and she wanted to see me. And I went and I picked my daughter up. We went to the mall and she spent all my damn money. <laughs> <laughs> and what I realized is I have to be more specific when I'm talking to God and <laughs> say I want to see my kids and I'd like a little change in my pocket at the end. <laughs> and she got in that car as I went to take her back home. And she said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. She said, you don't drink no more? I said, no, I haven't drank in some time. She said, how come you didn't ever come and get me? I said, every day I thought about you, but I couldn't take care of you because I have this thing called alcoholism. And as much as I love you, and I love you with everything inside of me, it kept me away from you. I said, but I'm going to AA now. And nothing at all can keep me from you again, as long as I do this stuff. She said, okay. And she put her head on my shoulder. And it was like we had never been separated. One of the best days of my life. I have a son who's 24, who is in prison, in jail right now as we speak, and just got bound over to the grand jury. And I believe he's one of us. And when he got arrested, I wanted to go get him so bad, y'all. And thank God for Al-Anon. Because my Al-Anon sponsor was the one that told me, don't go get him. Because if you go get him, you're going to go get him just to make yourself feel better. That may not help you. And I thought about it. My parents didn't never come and get me out of jail. <laughs> what was I thinking? So we write each other. And I get to send him little sayings out of the big book. And he always says, where does this come from, this stuff you say? And I finally told him two weeks ago where it comes from. And he went to his first AA meeting in jail. So for those of you like myself who thinks it doesn't help, who take meetings into the jails, continue to take them into the jails. Because it most certainly works. It most certainly works. I don't know, you guys, uh, I, like I told you, I didn't go to school. I, you know, I couldn't read when I came to AA, and thank God for 530 Big Book meetings. Thank God for the alcoholics who taught me how to read. 
in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, who didn't judge me because I stumbled over words, or who became impatient because I stumbled. Those members who helped me, who told me how to pronounce it. Now, I had a diploma, but I had made it while I was in prison. <laughs> and my sponsor told me I couldn't use that. But I did use it. I gave it to my boss. It was in my personnel file because you had to have a high school education to work where I was working at the time. And, and uh, I told her that he had it, and she said, you need to go get it from me. And I said, but he'll fire me. I've been to prison five times. He's going to fire me. And she said, you go do it anyway. And so I went to my boss, and, and I said, uh, that diploma in my file is not real. He goes, what? And he went to my personnel file, and he pulled it out, and he looked at it. Good. <laughs> he said, but you got to have a high school diploma to work here. I said, are you going to fire me? He said, no, I'm going to give you six months to get it. So all of a sudden, I'm watching TV one night in my very first apartment I've ever had in my life. And all of a sudden, over the TV, it says, you too can get your high school diploma <laughs> on TV. <laughs> so I called the number, and I sent them some money, and they started sending me books. And I'm reading the science, and I'm doing the deal. And I take the test, and I send it back. I pass it. I get the social studies. I get the math. I get the English and the reading. And I send all the tests back, and I passed them all. And then I went to take the equivalency of the high school diploma, and I got a perfect score. <laughs> May not be a lot to you guys, but man, that was huge for me. And when that thing came in the mail, December the 7th, 1999, I said, I'm going to college. I'm going to college. And I ran to the University of Cincinnati in admissions, and I was like, I want to go to, I want to go to college. <laughs> and they said, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. And about this time, they had incorporated the School of Addiction Studies at the University of Cincinnati. And I now have my liberal arts and social sciences certification in addiction studies. I have a few more classes, and uh, I'll be finished with my bachelor's. And then from there, I'll go on to my master's and hopefully to my doctorate. And then I will be the original Dr. Pepper. I've had a great time here this weekend, you guys. And I thank you so much for all that you've done for me. For those of you that came and put your arms around me, you don't know how much that meant. Sometimes we come to these things going through stuff. And I'm so thankful. Thank you, Hannah, for coming up to me. Thank you, Suzanne, for asking me if I was okay. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jack, for being the closest thing to a brother I've ever had. Jack sends me a postcard everywhere he goes. I'll be forever grateful for you. Jill and Jerry, thank you for being the closest thing to parents I've known. Back home, my grandmother used to sing this song. She would rock in her rocking chair and she was singing, and I never, ever knew the meaning of it until one day I was sitting in my apartment. And I heard the song in my heart. And I'm going to close with this. Amen. 
amazing grace. How sweet the, the sound that saved a wretch like me. See, I once was lost, but now I'm, I'm found. I was blind, but now I'm I see many blacks in San Antonio.